0: Well, Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to sit under Your Word. Lord, Your Word, is a, it's a miracle. It's revelation. It's You revealing Yourself to us. And as we study it, it's not the Bible, but the God behind the Bible. To know You is the greatest privilege in all our lives. And I pray that as we uh, discuss this message and this passage, that we will be stirred to truly understand you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a hospital in Austria, on May 18th of this year, an 82-year-old man woke up from surgery and discovered that the doctors amputated the wrong leg. This past week in Cleveland, Doctors discovered to their horror that they gave a kidney transplant to the wrong person. Anybody have any surgeries coming up, by the way? (laughs) This is something that lawyers call a never event, as in this never should have happened. Never events are actually more common than you know. They consist of perhaps operating on the wrong surgical site, operating on the wrong side, Doing the wrong kind of surgery, like doing an appendectomy when you should have done a gallbladder removal, Um, operating on the wrong patient. And usually it is a result of just sloppy paperwork and carelessness. And as a result, something that should have been helpful is harmful physically. Now, when it comes to the Word of God, the Word of God has great power to heal and to transform when it's applied properly, but when it is not, when the pastor or the Bible teacher doesn't get it right, a spiritual disaster awaits. For instance, if you have a a pastor who warps a biblical understanding of grace, the congregation has license to sin. Or if a pastor adds works to the gospel or perhaps binds the conscience of of his flock with unbiblical understandings, they don't understand the the glory of, of the grace of God. When a pastor gets it wrong, when the Bible teacher gets it wrong, the audience and even the Bible teacher himself get the Christian life wrong. And this explains why Paul is so protective of the Word of God. Now, in 2 Timothy, remember the whole theme is there's a, a transfer of leadership. Paul is about to fade off the scene. Timothy is going to take over. And it's important to Paul that as Timothy continues the ministry of the Word, that he gets it right. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to 2 Timothy two fourteen through 19. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have sworn from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and ever, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, you have to keep in mind that Paul is speaking from prison. Nero is out to get Christians. There is an anti-Christian bias in the Roman Empire at this time, and therefore, there would be a temptation to not invite unnecessary persecution. There was a temptation to want to tone down certain doctrines that the audience might find offensive. Right, in this day and age, I mean, there's a temptation for pastors to maybe tone down the rhetoric on LGBT issues because they don't want to offend the sensibilities of the listening audience. Or perhaps they they know that the idea of eternal conscious torment of hell is deeply offensive to many people, and so they'll try to air condition it. When persecution is, is promised for the message that we preach, there's a temptation to get the word wrong. Agreed? But this has catastrophic consequences. You see, you need to get the word right to get worship right. You need to get the word right to get worship right. You see, getting the right interpretation of the Bible, the right understanding of the Bible is a necessary condition to live the Christian life. It's a necessary condition for worship. Now, it is true that you can get the word right and get the Christian life wrong, right? There's many, many professing believers who have a deep, profound, wonderful understanding of doctrine, but they live against the clear teaching of God's word, okay? That does happen. But it is impossible to get the Christian life right if you get the word of God wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? Getting the word right is a necessary condition for living a worship God, worshipful God honoring Christian life, you look at Romans chapter twelve, which uh, Timothy or not Timothy, my Timothy I guess Tyson preached uh, a few weeks ago about the concept of worship. Where where after detailing the great glorious doctrines of God's grace and justification, Paul pivots with Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what the Word of God does is it helps us identify the lies of the world. So that we can renew our mind and we can live a life that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. And so to live a life of of true worship, you have to get the Word of God right. You have to get it right. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this passage, which really is one of the strongest admonitions to get it right. And and we were going to just consider four, four issues. Number one, what does it mean to get it right? Secondly, what happens when you get it right? And thirdly, or sorry, what, what happens when you get it wrong? And then what happens when you get it right? So it's all out there. I kind of mingled it. So what does it mean to get it right? What happens when you get it wrong? And what happens when you get it right? And then I have a fourth bonus point that's not necessarily tied to the Word. It's from the book of Dave. I know there's a deep irony as I'm talking about the word, right? But, but I want to give some wisdom as to how you can get it right in your own studies. Okay, so let's look at the, the first point. What does it mean to get it right? Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruin to hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, Paul is giving a little pastor-to-pastor talk, isn't he? He wants to make sure that Timothy gets it right. But you know what? Paul had an expectation that not just pastors got it right. Uh, we learn in Acts 17, 11, that now those Jews who were more noble, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There's a commendation for Christians who seek to get it right too, right? All of us need to get it right. And so what, what Paul is doing is he calls on Timothy to get it right by saying, remember these things. He goes back to the basics, right? When he says, remember these things, what are these things that he's referring to? Well, it's this elegant saying that he just said. Look at the earlier context in 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, right? This is something that was a well-known saying that was, uh, we talked about last time I preached, it was often associated with a baptism. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, we'll also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is a a summary of the Christian life. And what's interesting is that Paul says to remember. He doesn't point to something that's new or novel. He points to an ancient message that has transformed this world. Uh, Remember, the the whole point of the Bible is to bring us to uh, the worship of God. To know how to please our Lord. And the first step towards pleasing our Lord is getting into a right relationship with Him. We seek to promote a message that is 2,000 years old. To help people remember it. If we have died with Christ... You know, this speaks of the glorious union that Christians share with Christ. When he died on the cross, he bore the penalty for our sin so that those who died with him will not be penalized for their sin. And when he was raised from the dead, he conquered sin and death, offered freedom of forgiveness, and those who place their faith in him rise with him. We endure with him. He endures with us. Right? If we're faithless, if we stumble, we remember that we are saved by faith in Christ, not the strength of our faith. This is a summary of the Christian life. It is a message that we always need to protect and remember. Now, at my old church, I was the, uh, the scrub pastor, lowest man on the totem pole. And so whenever there was a funeral home, who called, uh, called our church, excuse me, I was often dispatched. <clears throat> and so me and music pastor, we did a bunch of funerals together for People who didn't necessarily go to church or go to our church. So naturally, you know, as a pastor, you're preaching to total strangers. What's going to be the content of your message? It's going to be the gospel. And I use my best gospel message every time with my best illustrations. And I remember talking to my, my friend and I said, you know, this is after like doing 10 funerals together where I gave the same message. Did we ever get kind of tired of it? Get bored of the message? And he just said, You know what, Dave? Tell me the old old story. Do you guys know that hymn? Tell me the old old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. All right? He trained himself never to get bored with the gospel. He loved hearing the old, old story. It's like that old couple who loves telling the story of how they first met and fell in love. You remind them of these things. That is our heart affection is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love the old, old story. And preachers point back and help you remember the old, old story. That is the focus of getting it right. Not being distracted by things that deviate from that message. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now, when he says, charge them before God, this is a very serious command. And the charge is not to quarrel about words. Now, this is not a prohibition against dialogue or discussion. Uh, You see in, let's say, Acts 15 that dialogue had a real meaningful, wonderful, profound healing effect on the church. What's being prohibited here is quarreling about words, quarreling, you know, that they heated argument. As a young Christian, I uh, did my best to try to counterattack the Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my door. And I remember they gave me this, this pamphlet with some creepy drawings. You guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know who does the art for those things, but they're just creepy. And it was... The title was, What's in His Name? And the whole point that they were trying to make is that Christians are getting it wrong because we call God God instead of His true biblical name, which is Jehovah. Now, I was a young Christian, but I did take German. And I knew that there was a German origin to Jehovah. And I said, and I thought I had Him in a gotcha situation, right? It's not Jehovah, Jehovah Witness, is Yehovah. And we went back and forth where I thought I I had them. They wanted to get the name of God right. That's like calling me Javij, right? What's the point of calling me by my name if we're mispronouncing it? And they weren't getting it. They are firing back. I was getting fired back. And, and, And it was just this agitated, angry conversation. And I was missing the whole point of the gospel because I was quarreling about a word. Sometimes you can be so fixated on a word and there's so much heat in a word that you're distracted by the beauty and the majesty of the totality of the Christian message, which is the gospel and all of its implications. You focus on the word. And, and what I was trying to do was I was trying to win the argument instead of winning the approval of God, which is the focus of a Christian who is preaching. Look at verse 15. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And here we see the fear of the Lord. We know from James, the Lord's half-brother, in in chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is temptation when you're preaching before men to want men and women to compliment and enjoy the sermon. I heard of a pastor who had a sermon critic who would always come up to him after every sermon and give him some cutting feedback. And he shared about how when he would preach and when he would study, he would always prepare his sermons with the critic in mind and when you look at at the audience it's like everybody had normal shaped heads but this critic had bigger heads, had a bigger head or or you look at the the pastor who is trying to preach in a way that's non-offensive to non-Christians or perhaps certain factions in the church where they're fearing men and they're compromising their message instead of really fearing the Lord. What does the Lord think about the content of the message? And the fear of the Lord impacts you in other ways as well. If a pastor is struggling with pornography, he's not going to preach on lust the way it should be preached. If he's neglecting his marriage, his preaching on the family is going to be compromised. See, part of preaching and teaching God's Word is you do it with the fear of the Lord. You try to be approved by the Lord knowing that he will evaluate it. And what will be the standard? Well, verse 15 again. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. Literally cutting it straight. Now there's some speculation about what this means. It might be a, Cutting a straight furrow, uh, perhaps cutting straight stones in masonry. Um, There's a reference in Proverbs 3 6, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. We don't know the precise cultural nuance of this, but we get the point. If you teach the word, you need to get it right, you need to cut it straight. If a pharmacist prescribes a prescription, he needs to give you the right dosage of the right medication. Otherwise, it loses its potency. For, For the gospel to save, you can't massage it. You can't amputate something from it. You cannot add something to it. It has to be the pure, powerful message of God's Word. And not just the gospel, really all of God's Word has a transformational effect. Later on, Paul will teach us in Timothy and in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. To equip the saints, you need to teach the Word of God as it stands. You need to get it right. When you study the Word of God, you need to get it right. So what happens when you get the word of God wrong. Well, we see a tragedy in verse 16 through 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it'll lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. All the irreverent babble is leading people into ungodliness. It is swerving them from the truth. And Hymenaeus here has made a comeback. He was put out and we learn he was put out of the church in 1 Timothy, some way, somehow, some way, he found his way back in and he's leading people astray with a false gospel that is appealing to their cultural sensibilities. See, this is often how false teachers work. Romans 16, 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So you have a, a pastor who preaches all about justice. But If you listen closely, there's no words of truth, just accusations of racism disdain for God's people, the sowing of cynicism, and the feeding of self-righteousness. Or they will call on the church to be compassionate, loving, and affirming, but tolerate sexual sin and deny the biblical sexual ethic. Or they will baptize Fox News and lead the congregation to pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these social justice warriors, these secular liberals, these critical race theorists are these trans women weightlifters. Thank you for delivering me from them. And they'll preach all about the sin out there, but never confront the self-righteousness in here, right? All of that is flattery, right? All of that is, is teaching people what they want to hear. And when you do this, you inject a false gospel of self-righteousness, of accommodation, of compromise, that will ruin the hearers. It spreads like gangrene. I did a little Google image search on gangrene. You don't need to do it. I did it for you. It's gross. It is gross. It is tragic. It's when the tissue... Um, basically dies on your body and it creates a bacteria that just begins to spread and it grows and it gets out of control and that's the way it is with false teaching rotten preaching leads to a rotten congregation an infection in the pulpit leads to an infection in the pew and there are some examples of this in verse 17 Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Now, this is what they were doing. In that day and age, among the Greeks, they saw matter as evil and the immaterial as good. They believed that the body was simply a a corrupt, evil husk that holds a good, immortal soul. And so to, to suggest to your typical, thoughtful Greek that there is a future bodily resurrection was nonsensical. And so men like Hymenaeus and Philetus came up with a compromise. Yes, there is a resurrection, but it's not a material one. It's an immaterial one. It's a spiritual resurrection, one that has already happened. And as a result, they devastated the cornerstone of the Christian faith, which is the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a big deal about the resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ affirms the goodness of creation, the power of God to actually bring somebody back from the dead. It testifies about our faith. It testifies that the power of death has been defeated. But they were compromising. They kind of licked at the cultural winds and decided to adjust the gospel message accordingly. And they corrupted it. And you think, well, you know, it was just a very small change. They just made one slight alteration. They took something away. But Paul says elsewhere that if you add something to it, specifically in Galatia, it was adding circumcision to the gospel. He says this in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. A different gospel leads to a different destination. Let me say that again. A different gospel leads to a different destination. That's what happens when you get it wrong. So what happens when you get it right? Look at verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul, once again, makes it very clear that the Lord will still win in the end. He says, God's firm foundation stands. Now, foundation is likely uh, a reference to a concept that we see in 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church the living, of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the Of the truth that the church is a firm foundation it is one that is sealed one that is owned by God when you preach the Word of God the church is further defined there is a purification that happens when you preach the Word of God and what it does when you preach the Word of God faithfully when you get it right is that the right people will remain and the right people will depart. When you preach the word of God faithfully, the right people will remain, and the right people will depart. And this is seen in the two quotes that we see in verse 19. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. These are two summary quotes from the book of Numbers, specifically chapter 16, and the story of Korah's rebellion. Do you guys know about Korah's rebellion? It doesn't really make it into too many Bible stories and storybooks for kids, and you'll see why. Korah was a Levite, but he was not a priest. They were in the wilderness doing their time for their unfaithfulness to the Lord and believing the spies instead of believing the Lord. And they've had it enough with Moses and Moses' leadership, and they made a contention. Moses, why do you think you're so much better than us? How come you can go and offer incense and make offerings? I mean, didn't you say that we're a holy nation? We're holy just like you. We should be able to go to the tabernacle. We should be able to sacrifice and offer incense. And Moses pushes back in Numbers 16.5. He says, in the morning, The Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. This is the lengthy statement that's summarized with the Lord knows those who are his. And so there is a big preparatory time that is taking place. They're all assembling their uh, their people. And Moses gives a warning in Numbers 16 26 to 27. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah. So there's a big assembly, right? And Moses says, You guys might want to back away from Korah. And so they create a lot of space between them and Korah. Korah's over there. They are separating themselves, right? This is a a summary of what we see in verse 19. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. They are departing from Korah. And then the earth opens up, Korah and everybody who's standing by him falls in and then it shuts. There's a purification where the word of God, the prophetic warning from Moses Preserved people from judgment. It identified the false teachers and it purified the congregation. Because that's what Korah was. He took a partial truth and made it the whole truth, denied the priesthood, and he was summarily judged. See, when you faithfully preach the Word of God, it purifies the church, it drives those people with, with aberrant theology, heretical theology, away from the church. And sadly, those who follow go out too, but they went out from us because they were not of us. See, getting the word of God right preserves worship, and it preserves the church. When a church compromises on that and allows those people to stay in, spiritual ruin will take place. So in light of the importance of getting the word of God right, how do you get it right? How do you get it right? Well, look at verse 15. Paul says do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker. Do your best to be a worker, right? There, there's a certain amount of degree, certain degree uh, of of hard work uh, of diligence that's required to get something right. But when he says rightly handling the word of truth, there's also a certain degree of skill. Now I came across a, a curriculum about how to interpret the word of God, and, and there are four words that were used, and I found this very helpful. Okay, you can write this down. The first word is receive, the second word is read, the third word is reflect, and the fourth word is relate. So read, or so receive, read, reflect, and relate. So as we kind of go down this, this will just give you kind of a broad framework for how to approach biblical interpretation. The first one is to receive. You receive the text as it stands, that you receive the word of God as the word of God. When we study the Bible, we're not studying some sort of ancient document where we can pick and choose what is true and what is not. We do not stand over the text, we stand under the text. You see, to really receive the Word of God as the Word of God, you have to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.14 about the natural man, the, the man who has not been reborn regenerate, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Conversely, when somebody is born again and they have the Spirit of God, they can understand the authority of God's Word. It goes from just being an ancient document to God speaking to the heart of the regenerated Christian. Does that make sense? So the first thing to study the Word of God is you have to receive the text as revelation to be spirit-filled, to be born again. That's why you all know more than some of the top-notch Bible scholars who don't know the Lord. They They may know what it says, but they don't know truly what it means and what it was meant to say. Secondly, you read the text. You read it. You don't read into it. You read and get your information out of it. Nehemiah, or sorry, Ezra 7.10, one of our Bible study heroes, Ezra, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Right, when you study something, You seek to master its content, right? When you study for a test, you try to understand the content as it's presented by the professor. You don't give them your own theories, right? You don't read into it and you say, this is what Moby Dick means to me. You talk about what it actually means, what's the plot of the story. If you're having a conversation with somebody, you want to find out what they're trying to say, not what you think they say. You don't read into the text, that's something called eisegesis. You read out of the text, which is exegesis. You try to find out what it meant. And the golden rule of biblical interpretation is this. A text can never mean what it never meant, right? A text can never mean what it never meant. What did it mean to the original authors and readers? Thirdly, you reflect you try to contemplate the passage so that you can get the accurate meaning. In Nehemiah eight thirteen, we read of a Bible study. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households, of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the Lord. And so you look at it from up and down, side to side. You scrutinize it. You think about it. You might, you might go to a Bible dictionary if you read about Jerusalem or Judea and you find out historical information about where it is, what the culture was like. If you want to find out what it meant to the original audience and learn about the original audience, and there's a lot of resources that can help you, good commentaries, uh, study Bibles, blueletterbible.com. You read the near context and the far context. You seek to master the whole book. You can spend five minutes reading a passage, but 50 hours reflecting on it, trying to find the interpretation. And then fourthly, you relate to it. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, right? He just didn't want to study it and understand it. He wanted to do it. And so how do you make sure you could do this faithfully? And I think this is where a lot of people get into trouble. I'll explain that later. The first thing you ask is, what does this passage show us about how God shows us about God, about who He is? Secondly, what does this passage show about how God relates to man? Or thirdly, what does this show about how man relates to God? Every passage in the scripture can answer one of those three questions. What does this passage reveal about the nature of God? What does this passage reveal about how God relates to man? And how does this passage reveal about how man relates to God? And you want to be careful that the point of the passage is the point of the application too. So this is where people get into trouble. The pastor gets up and he preaches about David and Goliath. He tells a dramatic story about a little boy named David who grabs five stones He defies the odds, he defeats the giant because of his faith in God, and then he asks you the question Who are the giants in your life that you need to slay? Do you need to slay insecurity? Do you need to slay debt? Do you see the problem there? It's not about how to get out of debt. It's about demonstrating that Jesus, that I'm sorry, David is the rightful king of Israel. It's a validation of his character and faith in the living God. That's a misapplication. Another passage, I'm going to step on toes here, that is often misapplied is Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Don't raise your hands. But how many of you said, that's my life verse, that applies to me. God has a plan for Dave, hence, declares the Lord. Plans for Dave's welfare and not for evil. Plans to give Dave a future and a hope. Now here's the problem. In the context, it's given to an exiled people in Israel. And it's a reassurance that God has not given up on Israel, that God still has a plan for Israel. And so you may say, well, isn't it true that God does have plans for us and he does have a future for us. And it is true. It is true. We know that from Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so what happens is people take the right theology, but they use the wrong verse, right? The right theology with the wrong verse and you may think you know what it's not like it's heresy we're still getting the the message right so what if it doesn't come from the right verse what's the matter with getting the right theology from the wrong verse i'm going to give you five reasons why that's a problem number 1 you form bad habits you form bad habits exegetical laziness if you did a little bit more research and investigation, you'd find out that Jeremiah 29 11 doesn't actually say what you thought it said. I can't tell you how many times I've been in my study, and let's say the elders gave me some assignment to preach on some topical message, like evangelism or giving. And I sit down and I think, man, this is a perfect text for it. And then when I study it, I realize it's actually not talking about giving at all. Have right? you ever been there? You see, if it is the right theology from the wrong text, then you need to keep on working and doing the labor to make sure that you can find the right text to go with the right theology. Agreed? Secondly, if you fail to, if you give the wrong theology or right theology from the wrong text, you, you lose credibility. Let's hear you're, you're talking to some, some scripture mangler, some scripture twister, like a Jehovah's Witness or somebody else like that, and they find out that that you are playing fast and loose with the text as well, but you insist that you still have the right theology, you don't really have credibility to say this is what the Bible actually says. Thirdly, you downgrade the authority of the word. If you are committed to the right theology on Scripture, right theology, and let's say you get into some theological debate, you could choose the topic and somebody points to a verse that seems to undo your theological assertion, you will have a tendency to say, well, they're just being sarcastic, or he didn't really mean that. And you find yourself explaining away what the Bible says and striving to integrate what the Bible says into that overall theology. How do you even know what's the right theology if you can't find the verse to prove it? Fourth, you teach the flock to rely on the teacher, not the text. Man, I listen to Pastor Bob's teaching, and he sees things in the text that I don't see. Man, I, there must be something that I'm missing here, but he clearly gets it. And so what you have is a culture where people start quoting Pastor Bob and not the Bible. To see why that's a the problem? They rely on the teacher, not the text, because... They know that there's a right theology out there, and apparently it comes from this text when it doesn't. And fourthly, and this is probably the most important, you leave the flock vulnerable. If people have the right theology from the wrong text, then people aren't anchored in the Bible, they're anchored in the theology. And they're anchored in a theology that is, and theological conclusions that are part of the church culture and the church teaching. But what happens when people change cultures or change communities? Perhaps they go off to college. I remember reading an interview with a a professor who was a professor at a very large, very conservative Christian university. And she was reflecting on different people that she knew, different students she knew who departed from the faith eventually. And she said many of them would come in their freshman year and they were theologically conservative, they were politically conservative, they were certain about what they believed. They represented the kind of churches that would send people to this theologically conservative university. But what happened was they didn't quite anchor what they believed in the Word of God. And so when there was a problem passage, perhaps a passage that would shake them up, they didn't know how to deal with it. Liberals, unbelievers, know the Bible quite well, and they're able to weaponize the Bible against people and really shake people up. And if all you have is the conclusion and the theology and is not anchored to biblical texts, you are vulnerable to cults and are vulnerable to scoffers. So so here's a question. How many of you believe, well don't raise your hand, I will assume that the majority of you believe that abortion is wrong and abortion is murder, right? Can you prove that from the scriptures? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity? Can you prove that from scripture? Anybody enjoy bacon today? How do you harmonize that decision with the clear prohibition against eating pork in the Old Testament? Do you see where I'm going? A lot of you young people, you have grown up in the church and you have been catechized. You've been taught biblical conclusions. But maturation means that you're able to take what you believe and be able to draw a line to the Word of God to support it. You need to get it right and have the right theology with the right verses. So ultimately, getting it right is essential to worship. You can get the Bible right and get worship wrong, but you can't get worship right if you get the Bible wrong. And for those of you who are church shopping, looking for churches, what's the most important thing to look for? It's not the children's programs, it's not the music, it's whether or not the pastor gets the Bible right. And all of you have a responsibility to get the Bible right. It means you get involved in Bible study in Sunday schools. You spend time studying the Word. See, the Word has tremendous potential and potency to to transform and change anyone and everyone. But it cannot be diluted or corrupted in transmission. To take this Bible and teach it wrongly, to teach the gospel wrongly or compromise, well, Well, basically, sap it of its power because it's no longer the gospel. Yet the word of God is going to change this community and change this church and change our souls and change our society. It's incumbent upon us to get it right. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, we may not get it perfectly, but Lord, I pray that you'll shape and change and help us to understand it correctly so that we can get it right, that your gospel message will change and transform the hearts and the hearers of everyone in this room and beyond. Lord, I pray for um, just the, the growth of our flock, that we will be passionate about the Word because we're passionate about you. And that the the goal will not just be knowledge and understanding things rightly, but to live rightfully and rightly in worship towards you. Lord, help us to not be haughty about understanding it rightly, but also humble when we understand the greatness and grandeur of who you are.